right. Thank you, David, for that children's sermon. Appreciate that. That's what I usually say, isn't it? Something like that. All right. If you will please take your Bibles, we're going to start in Psalm 137. So you go ahead and turn to Psalm 137. Kind of have that ready there. Hope, peace, joy, love, these things we focus on with the Advent wreath this time of year are all intangible qualities, right? It's kind of hard to qualify them, hard to put your hands around them, uh, and they can even seem out of reach. They can seem unattainable in our world today. You know, people want these things. They want hope. They want peace. They want joy. They want love. That's something that all people want, and it's what we need for our spiritual and our emotional well-being. How can we have them? How can we have hope? How can we find peace in this war-torn world with such hatred and evil and such terrorism uh, around the world? How can people have joy in a world with disease and death and natural disasters? I can't help but think about how hard it is for those poor people in Tennessee and Kentucky that just had these tornadoes that ripped through their communities last week. And how are they supposed to celebrate Christmas? How can they have joy right now? I think about the people in Israel that have been trying to celebrate Hanukkah and and, and Christmas coming up. How are they supposed to do that in the face of that terror attack on October 7th? How are they supposed to do that in the face of knowing that they've got family and friends still held hostage by Hamas? How can the people that we know in our own church and community just celebrate Christmas like everything's A-OK when they've lost loved ones, when they're dealing with illness and other uncertainties in their life? Last week we looked at Isaiah where he prayed, Until when, Lord? How long, Lord? And maybe that's your prayer. It's a cry of desperation. It's an admission that all is not right with the world. But as Christians, even though we can pray that, even though we can feel that, we always end with the hopeful prayer, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come as that King of Kings. Come as that Prince of Peace to make all things right, to make all things new. So today, we remember that Jesus came to satisfy our longing, not just for hope and for peace, but for joy, for joy. But maybe this Christmas, your prayer is more like Isaiah. How long, Lord? Or like David in Psalm, 113, in Psalm 13, we'll get to 137, but first in Psalm 13, David prayed, How long, O Lord? Same thing Isaiah did. Will you forget me forever? How long uh, will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Now let's look at Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is written, it is very similar to David's prayer, very similar to Isaiah's feelings. This is written during the Babylonian exile. Remember the last two Sundays we've looked at prophecies of Isaiah. He is pronouncing judgment on the people of of Judah. He's telling them that because of their wickedness, their idolatry, their refusal to return to the Lord, God is bringing Babylon as judgment. And Babylon will destroy Jerusalem and the temple and will take them into exile for a generation. Psalm 137, they're there. And let's look at what they say. This, this really reflects their experience and their feelings in exile. Let's look at just the first six verses here. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, there we hung up our lyres, our, our harps on the poplar trees. For our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors for rejoicing, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How 
can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Like the exiled Jews in Babylon, our sorrow can make it nearly impossible to think about singing songs of joy. And you think about Christmas songs and carols and all of that. For some people, those are so hard to sing right now. How could the Jews know joy in exile? How can we know joy in our grief, in our sorrow, and the uncertainty that we face? Well, back in Psalm 13, David gives us the answer. He doesn't just say, How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me? He then goes on to say, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for He has been good to me. We must trust in God's unfailing love, rejoice in His salvation, choose to sing His praises because we remember that He has been good to us. Thankfully, joy isn't so much an emotion we feel as it is a choice that we make. It's a state in which we choose to live. Happiness is an emotion that's entirely dependent on our circumstances, right? Things can make us happy. Things can make us sad. Happiness is about what happens to us. But joy is different. Joy is an attitude of the heart. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit that can endure the trials and sorrows of life. And it's present regardless of what is going on in our lives. Regardless of what's going on in the world around us. Happiness is predictable, right? I mean, good marriages... Rewarding jobs, fun vacations, winning football seasons. I'll know what that is one of these days. <laughs> these things make us happy. But joy isn't as predictable. Joy turns up when you least expect it. When things don't go as planned. When we need it the most, that's when God blesses us with joy. I think a good illustration of the difference between happiness and joy comes from Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You guys know the story, right? The Grinch hates all things Christmas. And he tries to steal the joy of all those who's down in Whoville. And so he dresses up as Santa and he rides to the town on Christmas Eve and he takes all the presents and the trees and the food and the decorations and the stockings. He takes everything that he thinks makes Christmas Christmas. And he thinks that without all of that, the Who's will be as joyless and depressed as he is. Because misery loves company, right? But much to his chagrin, on Christmas morning, what should he hear but the Who's singing Christmas songs down there in Whoville? And he's perplexed. How could Christmas still come when he's taking all of those things away that, again, he thinks makes Christmas Christmas? And so this is what Dr. Seuss writes. And the Grinch with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons, it meaning Christmas. came without ribbons, it came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't thought of before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? Happiness is based on the stuff that we have. And whether or not something that happens to us 
is what we want. If it's good or bad, makes us happy or not. But joy is based on something a little bit more. Joy can't be bought in a store. It doesn't come with bags or tags or packages, unlike happiness. There's another deeper truth about joy that I want us to think about that seems counterintuitive. And we read this truism in Galatians 6-7. It's a universal truth that's mentioned several times in the Bible. It says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That makes sense, right? We reap what we sow. Work hard, study hard, keep your nose clean, and you'll be successful, right? Run around with the wrong crowd, be irresponsible, cheat and steal. You'll suffer the consequences. You make your bed, you're going to lie in it. That's often how the world works, but does it always work that way? No. Often bad things do happen to good people. And sometimes the worst people seem to prosper the most. But there's another truth found in Scripture, one that's counterintuitive, one that almost goes against that truism because this is actually more of a promise than an observation of how the world generally works. It's a promise that no matter what we sow, we can reap the fruit of joy by God's grace. And we find this in another psalm, Psalm 126, verses 4 and 5. It says, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. The beauty of Christmas is the truth that while we may be sowing seeds of sorrow today through the grace and power of God, those seeds can miraculously produce an abundant harvest of joy. And there are so many examples of this in the Bible, this principle of God's mercy and grace, but we see it especially at work in the family tree of Jesus. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. Verses 1 through 17. Now, we're not going to read this whole list of names this morning, but if we did, we'd find a lot of the people in this list could testify to this principle that when we sow seeds of sorrow, we can reap a harvest of joy. But I want us to look at four names in this list. The four most unlikely names in this list. Four women. Now, Hebrew genealogies almost never mention women. They're primarily about passing on the family line from father to son. So it's significant that Matthew chooses to include the names of four women in Jesus' genealogy. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think three reasons. There are three things he wants to point our attention to. The first is God's sovereign will. Because, you see, none of these women are here by birth. None of them are in Jesus' family tree by birth. In fact, we know at least three of them, maybe all four of them, are Gentiles. Right? Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. We don't specifically know about Bathsheba, but we know she was married to Uriah the Hittite. He was a Gentile. They're outsiders. But they're brought into this amazing family tree by God's gracious choice. And this should give us all hope that no matter our background, no matter our ethnicity, our nationality, we too can be welcomed by God's grace into the family of God. So it points us to God's sovereign will. Secondly, God's compassionate grace. Because all four women represent us as fellow sinners. Right? Of course, everybody's a sinner. But you think about Tamar. She acted like a prostitute. Rahab certainly had the reputation of one. Ruth 
Now, she was a noble woman, but she was a Moabite. And the Moabites in the Old Testament were often criticized for their sexual immorality. And in fact, uh, for a period of time, Moabites were prohibited from entering into the assembly of God. So while Ruth herself was a noble woman, she was from a, a line of people that were known for their wickedness. And Bathsheba committed adultery with King David. Yet they are included in Jesus' genealogy, which tells us that any of us who are sorrowful over our sin, we confess and repent of our sin, any of us can also experience the compassionate grace of God and be brought into the family of Jesus. But third, I think Matthew mentions them to remind us of God's transforming power because each of these four women experienced great sorrow, but through God's grace they reaped a harvest of joy. Their stories remind us that no matter what happens to us, no matter what we might be facing right now, God can take our tears and transform them into laughter. He can turn our mourning into dancing. We may be sowing seeds of sorrow, but He turns them into an abundant harvest of joy. So I want us to look at these four women and think about that in terms of the sorrow they sowed and the harvest that they, of joy that they reaped. The first is Tamar's story. Look at verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, we read her story in Genesis 38. She was a Canaanite who married Judah's oldest son, Ur, but what she married into was into a very sad story. Ur was a wicked man, and by God's judgment died before they were able to have a child. And by the law and custom of that day, Tamar was required to bear a child by Judah's second son, by Ur's brother to continue that family line. Everything then was about continuing that family line. And so the second son was also wicked and he died before he could produce an heir. Well, the third son was too young to marry. And so Judah put Tamar away to live as a widow until his youngest son was old enough. But to add insult to injury, Judah forgot about her and just left her out there on her own all alone and she realized, I'm going to die childless. I'm going to die a widow and nobody's going to be able to take care of me. So she took action. She heard that her father-in-law Judah was in the area nearby. So she bailed herself, dressed as a prostitute, and sat out where he might see her. And see her he did. And he bargained for her. And to pledge a promise for payment, because he didn't have any money on him at the time, he gave her his signet ring... He gave her his uh, cord and his staff. These were personal items of identification. It's like he gave her his driver's license and social security card. Not exactly the smartest guy. And so the next morning, Tamar was gone. And he thought, well, at least I don't have to pay her. But she became pregnant. And when Judah learned of it, he wanted to put her to death for violating the family honor and breaking her commitment to perpetuate the family line of Judah. But Tamar proved herself to be cunning and bold because when she was brought before him in front of everybody, she said, the father of my child is the man to whom these belong. And lo and behold, it was the ring and the cord and the staff of Judah. And so Judah was humbled. He pronounced her more righteous than he was. He admitted that he had neglected his family and failed to care for her that she reminded him of his duty and that she had fulfilled her, not exactly in the best way, but she had fulfilled her family obligation to perpetuate the line. Tamar had experienced such tragedy, such neglect. In, in that patriarchal society, she had no power. She had no rights. 
She was treated unjustly, but in the end, because of her cunning, because of her boldness, she received a double blessing, twin boys, to take care of their mother in her old age. Her life of sorrow turned into a life of joy. Now, what is the lesson for us there? It's that when you feel forgotten, when you feel neglected and abandoned, God remembers you. God sees you. He will remember you when you feel forgotten. The second story is Rahab's story. If you look in verse 5, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Now, we see the rest of her story in Joshua 2 and 6. The second Canaanite woman who made it into Jesus' family tree, Rahab was a citizen of Jericho. Okay? Uh, she owned an inn that was located between the two walls of the city. Um, and inn and innkeepers back then, right or wrong, had a reputation uh, of prostitution. Think sort of like, you know, the saloon out west, you know, with the dance hall girls there. So that's sort of the kind of idea. So she had the reputation of being a prostitute. But despite her sordid reputation, she willingly put her life and her family's life on the line by protecting the Hebrew spies who came to scout out the land. She chose against her culture, against her people, against her religion by providing these men a safe place to hide. Now, Rahab was not aware of the fact that she was a part of God's plan to bring the promised land to the Jewish people. She wasn't a part of God. She didn't realize she was a part of God's plan to make them a kingdom of priests to represent Him to the earth. She didn't realize that God was going to bring her into the lineage of the Prince of Peace, the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent and bring redemption to all humanity. She didn't understand any of that. But she understood the God of the Hebrews and all they had done, all He had done for them. And she put her trust and her faith in Him and turned her back on the wickedness and the idolatry of her people. And her sorrow was turned to joy. Her mourning into dancing because God spared her life and her entire family's life when the walls came tumbling down. And they were adopted into the people of Israel. They effectively became Israelites because she put her faith and trust in the Lord. And the lesson for us here is that God welcomes outsiders into His kingdom. Because guess what? Because of our sin, we're all outsiders. We all come into this world enemies of God. We are outsiders to His kingdom. And we come into the kingdom of God not by our knowledge, not by our education, not by our income, not by our good works, not by birth. We come into the kingdom of God by His grace. He allows us in when we put our trust in Him, just as He did for Rahab. The third story we read is about Ruth. And that's also in verse 5. It goes on to say that Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth's story is obviously found in the book of Ruth, four chapters, a beautiful story. Uh, Ruth was from Moab, but she married a man from Bethlehem, a Hebrew. Now, tragically, her husband, brother-in-law, and father-in-law all got sick and died. And rather than wallow in her grief and sorrow, Ruth chose to be faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, Naomi... She became bitter. In fact, she said, call me Mara, which means bitterness. Don't call me Naomi anymore. So she became bitter after losing her husband and both of her sons. But Ruth chose not to be bitter. Instead, she followed Naomi back to Bethlehem and worked hard to provide for this childless widow. Ruth displayed incredible love, 
selfless devotion, faithfulness, generosity, and hard work. She didn't just glean barley to bring home for her and for Naomi. She gleaned a harvest of joy for herself and her mother-in-law. She, she came to discover that God had provided for them a kinsman redeemer in the man Boaz. And Naomi and Ruth once again had a family. They once again had a future. Bitterness was replaced with joy. Just listen to the last few verses of Ruth. Uh, in Ruth chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 17, it says, The Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a beautiful ending to Ruth and Naomi's story. And what a wonderful continuation of the heritage of godly women who experienced so much suffering and heartache yet received such blessing and joy. The lesson for us is that God comforts those who mourn. When we've experienced loss, even terrible, encompassing loss, as Naomi and Ruth did, God comforts us. He comes alongside of us. He doesn't leave us alone in our grief. Just as He did for Ruth and Naomi, He can do for you. And that brings us to our fourth and final woman in the story, and that is Bathsheba. If you'll look at verse 6, you know, sadly, poor Bathsheba, she doesn't actually get named in this passage. Uh, she's just mentioned as Uriah's wife. It says that uh, Jesse fathered King David, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. And you can read this particular part of the story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Bathsheba enters Jesus' story through unjust suffering and tragic loss. She was married to Uriah, who was one of King David's soldiers, and in fact, one of his mighty men, one of his good friends that had stood with him when he was out there in the wilderness running from Saul. And now he's off risking his life for his king, his nation, and his fellow soldiers while David's at home lounging around. And David sees and takes Bathsheba for himself. And when she became pregnant, to make a long story short, David instructed that Uriah be taken out into the thick of battle and left alone to die defenseless, and he did. Think about Bathsheba. She lost everything. Even the child that she and David conceived a few days after birth would die. Yet amid her sorrow, this woman began to see a change in her husband. She saw David transformed from a strutting sinner to a humble and repentant servant of God. In fact, he would become to be known as a man after God's own heart. And God blessed her with other sons and daughters. In fact, it was their son, Solomon, who would become the next king and who would rule over Israel's golden age. He would be known for his great wisdom and for being the king who built the temple of God in Jerusalem. Like so many others, Bathsheba experienced both the meanness and majesty of mankind. And she and David's story reminds us of another lesson, that God forgives the repentant sinner. Psalm 52 is a great psalm. It's David's prayer of confession for his sin. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a prayer in which we see his brokenness and his humility 
and his trust in God's grace and forgiveness. And their story reminds us, no matter what we've done, no matter what your past, no matter what skeleton's in your closet, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, he will forgive you. But there's one more woman who came into the lineage of Jesus by the grace of God and the strength of her character. Unlike Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, she herself was actually a descendant of Abraham. Like Tamar and Bathsheba, she was pregnant with a child that was not her husband's. Like Rahab, she willingly made space and gave room for the servant of God. And like Ruth, she was faithful, obedient, selfless, and gracious. Like each of these women before her, she experienced suffering, endured trials and tribulations, and sowed the seeds of sorrow. We read about her in verse 16, and her name is Mary. Look at verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Mary's betrothed husband nearly divorced her. When he learned that she was pregnant, and he knew that it was not his, and they were betrothed but not yet married. So betrothal in, in Jewish society at the time was kind of in between engagement and marriage. You were committed to this person. You had already basically said your I do's, but you had not yet come to live together as husband and wife. And so the fact that she is pregnant and it's not his child, he had every legal right not just to divorce her, he had every legal right to have her put to death. Her family and friends misunderstood her rejected her, mocked her. Her reputation was ruined in Nazareth. But Joseph was the noblest of men. And he listened to the word of the angel who came to him and said, Take Mary as your wife, for the child that she bears is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so they made the long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem to register for the census and pay their taxes. Now, so if all of that wasn't enough, all that she'd experienced in Nazareth, the fact that they're now having to travel when she is nine months pregnant to pay taxes in Bethlehem, they get there and Joseph's family won't give them room. They're turned away. And she has to give birth to her son in a stable, in the dirty, filthy hay on which the animals lay, cold and alone, with no midwife to assist her, no mother's hand to hold, no family to celebrate and rejoice with. They were alone. You can probably imagine the confusion, the doubt, the heartache that Mary experienced. This wasn't what she planned. This isn't how she wanted this to happen. This isn't how she wanted to have her first child. Imagine how she must have felt. But oh, what joy would come. Through the pain, anguish, and labor, joy would come. Wonder would come. Jesus would come. And the lesson for us from Mary and Joseph's story is that God abides. He lives and dwells in those who humbly trust Him. Like Mary, we too can bear Jesus into a world that's lost and dying and dark. We too can carry the light of the world to those around us. God promised the Jews in exile long ago in Isaiah 35 that where there were barren and lifeless deserts, He said, Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. And Isaiah goes on to say that those who were bound and enslaved by sin would experience the gladness and joy of salvation. 
We share in that same promise. As did Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. The promise that we will enter God's presence with singing, crowned with unending joy, joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. That's the language of battle. Right? You're, 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 you're at war with sorrow and with sighing. They're attacking us, but then you are overcome with the forces of joy and gladness. That's the army of God that comes to us to drive away all sadness and sighing. As we wait for Christmas, we long for the hope and peace of Christ, our Redeemer and our Sustainer. And as we wait and watch, we may find that the tears that we weep are like seeds of sorrow sown in the soil of God's grace and compassion. May we reap a harvest of joy. There's only one way to truly discover that. To truly discover a fulfilled hope, a peace that passes understanding, an inner joy, and that is to know Jesus. When you know Jesus as your Savior and you are following Him as your Lord, you will discover the greatest joy that you will ever know. A God who remembers you. A God who welcomes you into His family. A God who comforts you in your grief. A God who forgives you of your sin. A God who comes to dwell with you as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus took the sorrow of your sin upon Himself so that His joy might be complete in you. He wept that you might laugh. By His wounds you can be healed. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you. Emmanuel, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. He will have joy in you. In His love, He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Don't you want to know the mighty warrior who saves? Don't you want to know a God who rejoices over you with singing? You know, we come here every Sunday and we rejoice over Him with singing. We sing about joy to the world and hark the herald angels sing and silent night and away in a manger. We sing songs rejoicing over Him. It's amazing to think that God sings songs that rejoice over us. He loves you. Jesus came in that manger for you. Christmas is because of you. But if you've never turned from your sin, as these women we've talked about today did, as David did, if you don't, if you don't turn from your sin and trust in the Savior for forgiveness and for eternal life, you can't know that joy. You're still searching for it. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and I invite you to come today and just say, David, I want that joy. David, I want that peace. I need that hope. I've been, I've been relying on my own credentials. And they're not going to get me in the door. I want to put my trust in Jesus. I turn from my sin and I trust in Him. Would you come today and do that? Maybe you have done that and you've never expressed it through baptism and made that decision public. Or maybe you have and you and your family just say, this is the church where we know God wants us to serve and to rejoice and to share the good news with other people. Whatever God is laying on your heart today, He's speaking to you. This word today is for you. How will you respond? Would you stand and, sing and pray with me and then we'll sing. Father, we are so thankful for this day.
We're so thankful for the season. We're so thankful for the grace and the mercy of God that made Christmas possible. That Jesus Christ came, God the Son, entered into creation, took on flesh and blood to live as one of us, that He might die the death we deserve, rise to new life that we will share, and will someday come again to make all things new. God, we wait and we long with great hope and anticipation for that day. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But as we live in this in-between time, as we live in this tension, Father, we pray that You would help us to go into this world and to meet needs in Jesus' name, to share that love and joy, to come alongside those who are sorrowing and grieving and weeping and to help them discover that if they trust in You, those seeds of sorrow will turn into an abundant harvest of joy. God, we know people in our life, we know people in our neighborhood, in our community, people we work with and go to school with that are grieving. They're struggling. They're asking, How long, O Lord? God, help us to bear this good news of great joy to them. In Jesus' name we pray.